morning, yes. I'm, I'm so thankful to be back here with you this week, uh, to have this opportunity to, to get to know your congregation, uh, to, to travel a little around Montreal and to, to get some practice in preaching. As Steve said, I'm a pastoral apprentice with Church 21. Uh, this has been about two or three years that I've really been um, studying and being trained in this role. And so I'm so thankful to be here with you today. Uh, just to give you a little bit more of an idea of where I'm coming from. Uh, I'm from Southern Ontario, uh, not far from Toronto. I didn't grow up in the city. I grew up in the, the rural region. And uh, honestly, before I was maybe about 18 years old, I never even really thought about Quebec. It was very, you know, isolated, I guess you could say, in the way that like I'd never met a French-speaking person. I'd never had engaged with the idea of speaking French because I was homeschooled. And I, my, my mom was like, well, I don't know how to speak French, so we'll just skip that. And then I finished up high school in the, the public system and they, they just exempted me. They're like, we're not gonna send you into like the beginner French. You just, we'll just count something else towards that. And uh, and so this all brought me to like a point where I was at Bible school and I met this French-Canadian woman who is uh, speaking French to me in just a very small way to like, you know, reference her culture and just, you know, you know pride in that. And so she's like, bonjour, ça va bien? And I was just like, what? What are you saying? Like, I didn't, I didn't know bonjour. I didn't know that. That's how disconnected I was from just the, the knowledge of like Canada being having two official languages, having neighboring, Ontario neighboring to Quebec. And, you know, that sounds a bit weird. I didn't know the word bonjour and what that meant, but I don't know, my, my friends from Ontario, they might be watching this live stream right now, and they went through the, their whole, like, school uh, years being taught in the public system French. And, like, I can tell you, when they come to Quebec to visit, like, they only remember like, vous and we. So it's not really that bad that I got this far. Uh, I did take time to learn French when, when I, I met this French-Canadian woman. It ended up being more than just bonjour, comment ça va. It started to be a bit more of a relationship. So I've been married for 11 years, living in Quebec for 10 years. Uh, and this is just where I've discerned God has called me and my family to be working for him, doing his will here in Quebec. And so I studied French. I know a lot more than just bonjour now, and I can, I can hold a conversation. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to give you a little bit more of an idea of who I am and where I'm coming from, just since we have this opportunity to connect like this. And so to start things off today, I actually wanted to ask you a question. And there'll be times that I'll actually want you to give a response, but this is more of a, just a reflection for yourself. Have you ever been in a situation or are you currently in a situation where you feel like you're just out of options, okay? And it could be something simple. It could be uh, something financial. It could be something just like trying to schedule your summer vacation or it could be something that is, is very personal and something that is causing a lot of turmoil. And have you come to the place where you feel like you're out of options? You've exhausted every possible solution. Maybe you feel like you've just completely lost control of the whole situation and, and you don't really know where, where to go now. You don't know what to put your hope in. Things have, have fallen through. Uh, the plans have not worked out the way you thought. Uh, maybe all of this has even led you to a place of just feeling isolation, anxiety, uh, separation from others. And the question I want to lead into today is if you are currently experiencing this kind of situation or you have in the past, where, where could you find your hope in a situation like this, a situation where you've exhausted every other option? Where can you put your hope if there's no hope to be found? And so that's the question I wanna lead into today as we get into this passage. And honestly, I, I talked a little bit about myself to just really to make myself more comfortable, but my goal here is to not talk about myself, point to myself, but point to Jesus. So I'd like to just take a moment to pray and just so that all of us can just point our focus to Jesus and what this word is gonna be bringing today. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that you came to earth uh, as man so that we could, we could meet you in a personal way and that we wouldn't be separated from you, uh, that you uh, are so infinitely beyond our 
capacity to understand, but you are noble because of Jesus. And so I pray that today through this passage, we could come to know you and we could also come to know how uh, we can find our hope in you, Jesus. Uh, that's, the, that's the answer that we're looking for. But I pray that uh, as we work through this passage, we would see how that could really tangibly look in our life today and our life this week. And I uh, just wanna pray these things in, in Jesus' name, amen. So just to give you a recap of where, where we are today as we come into Mark chapter five. And Steve, he read 15 verses. Uh, the real thing that you should be prepared for is that I'm preaching on all 43 verses of Mark chapter five. So get ready, get your seatbelts, uh, and uh, maybe go get a drink or something. Because no, I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna be long-winded, but uh, it, it is a learning experience in the pastoral apprentice uh, opportunities I'm having. A couple weeks ago, I preached on four verses, and now I'm preaching on over 40 verses. It's just completely different both times. But we're in Mark, and I want to remind you, well, actually, why don't you tell me, what, what is Mark's goal in writing this gospel? Every time he, he wrote a word down, what was his desire as he was writing down these accounts? Could anyone uh, answer that question for me? Exactly. His, his main goal is uh, he wanted to take all the accounts that had been given to him of Jesus. He hadn't walked with Jesus. He didn't see these things firsthand, but he's being shared these accounts primarily from Peter is our understanding. And his goal is to, with as much accuracy as possible to present Jesus as the promised Messiah, to present Jesus as the savior. And he wants the reader to know that this Jesus, he accomplished the will of God Jesus, he restored relationship between God and man, this relationship that's been broken since the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve chose to act against God. And now Mark is presenting Jesus as the one who is restoring that broken relationship. And so in his writing, he uses few words, he uses precision to achieve his goal. And he, he wants to present Jesus and the accounts of Jesus as evidence enough. And that's something that's really interesting. You'll find that Mark, he, he doesn't, he's not long-winded. He doesn't take a lot of time to explain everything or even to go into his own interpretation of what happened. He presents the facts and he believes that the facts alone are enough to prove Jesus is who he says he is. And actually just today with you, I, I was preparing this sermon and I realized that I'm not gonna be refer, like referencing like what other people have said about this passage a lot. I'm not gonna be referencing a lot of other uh, verses in scripture. I'm like sticking straight in this passage because I believe that it has enough weight, it has enough truth for us to spend our whole time in this today. And so something that's interesting, something that's a little out of character for Mark is that his account of Jesus driving out the demons in Mark chapter five, verse one through 20 his account is actually longer than any other parallel account that we have in the Gospels, in Matthew and Luke when they wrote it. And so this is actually something that should be a little bit exciting because it means that Mark thought there was something that needed us to spend a little bit extra time, a little bit extra focus in this, in this passage. And so just to get into it, I, I wanted to remind you that last Sunday, uh, Pastor Dwight was here. He was talking about how Jesus, he calmed the storm, the, the waves, the wind and the sea. He calmed that uh, with, with just speaking the word silent and be still. And the, the disciples, while Jesus was still sleeping, they're in the boat, they're afraid for their lives. They think that they're gonna die. They think that the, this, this storm is gonna, is, they're gonna perish in the storm. That's what the, the Bible says. And, and they wake Jesus asking him, do you care if we, if we die? Do you care if we perish? And Jesus, he speaks to the storm and the waves. He says, peace, be still, and there's calm, okay? And that's, this is what we're coming out of. We just need to have this, this reminder of what we heard last week. And that, that peace, be calm, was enough for uh, the storm, the wind, the waves on a sea to calm to the point that, as our understanding that if you've ever been at a small lake, you know, and you go out in the evening with your canoe, and there's like, it's like glass, that's what you can be imagining, that the words of Jesus invoked a calm on the sea and the winds and the waves that was equ equivalent to, to that kind of peace in the end. That was the result. And so when the disciples saw that, we heard last week that they saw he had authority over the wind and the waves. And they go from being afraid of, of perishing to the physical storm to being greatly afraid of Jesus. And they, they ask each other saying, who is this then that even the wind and the, wave, uh, and the sea obey him? 
So I, I, I spent a bit of time reminding us of this because this entire event is a prelude, a prelude. And it's, it's showing us that something else is coming. It's an introduction, really, to what we're gonna find in this passage. It's showing us that Jesus has not only the power over the physical, but as we get into this passage, we see that he has the power over the spiritual as well. And so I'm just gonna read the first part of the passage again. You can turn with me to Mark chapter five and read with me if you like. And I'm reading from uh, ES, the ESV, uh, well, uh, English Standard Version, no. Yes, that's it. Uh, And so Mark chapter five, one through five. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So we, we see right away that there is a very powerful spiritual storm going on in this, in this man. This man is experiencing something that is very comparable to the wind and the waves causing turmoil on the sea, but the, this turmoil is happening, happening inside of him. And he has no hope. He can't be helped. He can't help himself. He's, he's literally experiencing hell on earth. And there seems to be no end in sight. And so we see an image of death in this man. He, he's surrounded by death. He's looking for death as it says that he, he's cutting himself with rocks. He's looking for a way of escape as his hope because he has nowhere else to look. And there's also this picture of an inverted power. The Bible teaches us that the power in God gives life, peace, joy, and community, and and so much more. But look at the power that this man has experienced because there is power here. You have to acknowledge that, that if he's able to break shackles, he's able to break chains, this is not a normal human physical power that we're seeing. There is an actual spiritual power here, but look at what this power is giving. It's giving death or, or at least living in the presence of death and, and there's turmoil, there's despair and there's isolation. So there's an inverted power here. And so we know that this is not a power that's of God. This is a power of something that is against God. And it, it's possible that at one point this man was actually seeking out this power. Maybe he had a desire to have this, this strength that came with these unclean spirits, these, these demons, this, this power that is against God, but that at first was, was tempting him. But now he has completely lost control. He has no control over this power and no one else can control him or can control this power that he is, has experienced and has basically uh, taken over him. And then Jesus, he sets his foot on the shore of this region. I'm not gonna to talk too much about where it is or what, what place exactly because it's, it's not really clear. All we know for 100% sure is that this was a Gentile region, okay? And so there, there are people that would be normally known as pursuing false gods, uh, not walking in the way of what the, the Jews would walk and, uh, or, and yeah. And so that's, they step on the shore and Jesus, you have to know that what, what just happened, where he's coming off of the boat that right at the same place that he calmed the storm in the sea. That's, that's the continuation directly. So the storm is calm, they make it to the shore, Jesus steps out of the boat. And now he's face to face with a man who has an equally violent storm raging inside of him. And so the man approaches Jesus and what is Jesus's composure? We see the same composure that we were presented when Jesus was in the boat with the storm. He is calm. And he is commanding with authority, come out of this man, you unclean spirit. And so that's the first thing. Jesus steps out of the boat. This man starts running towards him. He says, come out of this man, you unclean spirit. And then the man falls down and starts begging Jesus to not torment him. He says, he he cries out with a loud voice. What do you have to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you before God, don't torment me. Now, just pause for a minute and think of the irony here. Because we can understand that it's, well, it's very hard to know if, it, if it's the man who's consciously speaking or if it's the unclean spirit speaking through the man. But think of the irony either way that this man has literally been tormented for a very extended period of time. And now 
the, this, the unclean spirits of the man, they're asking that Jesus do not, like not to torment him. It's just, it goes against all logic. And we see that the, the spirit or the man are asking for, for mercy from Jesus. And that is something that is interesting because this is not what this man has been experiencing. He has not been experiencing mercy. But one thing to, to be clear here, when we talked about that power, that inverted power that this man has been experiencing, there's, there's no standoff. There's no face-off. There's no contest. There's no show of power. There's no one in this region who's strong enough or no number of men or, that are strong enough to subdue this man with unclean spirits. But then when these unclean spirits come face-to-face with Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, they know that there's no contest. They start to beg. And, and Jesus, he engages with them, and he says, what is your name? So it's, it's clear that when Jesus asks, what is your name, he is speaking to, at this point, the unclean spirits, and they present themselves as legion. And just, you might have heard this before, but this is a reference to a military division that could equal up to 5,600 foot soldiers and could include also 700 cavalrymen. And so we, we know that whatever unclean spirit or group of spirits that are, that are tormenting this man, they're identifying as a large number. That's all we need to hear. And the important thing is that Jesus engaging in this conversation, he's not, like, the whole purpose of Mark is to present Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior, and to, to show us what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. So don't forget, the disciples are staying there with Jesus, and they're, they're learning what does it look like to deliver someone from an unclean spirit. And Jesus is not showing them that there's this deliverance procedure that if you want to have authority over an unclean spirit, you have to have the name, and that way you have authority. That's false. Jesus is, in, in his understanding and his desire to disciple his followers, he's showing them through this conversation what, he, what they're up against. That's the only purpose. He wants them to know that like, just like in the boat, when they saw the, the storm, the wind and the waves, and they were, they were able to see, like, we're gonna perish. We're up against a storm and we're fishermen and we know that we can't make it through this storm. He, they want, he wants his disciples to see the storm that's going on inside this man. And that's, that's all, that's the only purpose. And so there's a storm raging on inside this man and, the, and Jesus wants it to be clear. And so that now the disciples know, okay, there seems to be an unprecedented number of unclean spirits. We've never faced this before. Is Jesus gonna have power and authority over this? We've, we've seen him with, with someone who has one unclean spirit maybe, but, but now it's, it's a different story. And like I said, there's, there's really no, there's no con- contest here. There's no show of power. The, de- the, the unclean spirits have already submitted themselves before Jesus. And so now they're actually trying to negotiate the terms. <laughs> and so we see them asking permission to enter a herd of pigs nearby and Jesus allows it. And so as modern readers, we might stop for a moment there and find that that's unethical. And it's strange that Jesus would basically destroy the livelihood of these these farmers in that region. And, and I just want you to know that Jesus is extremely intentional. He wasn't coerced into sending these, these unclean spirits into the, the pigs. He, he allows it and there's a reason because he continuing with the whole reason he had the in conversation with these unclean spirits in the first place, he wanted his disciples and those with him and around in the region to, to see at what point this man was under spiritual turmoil and, and this, this uh, spiritual storm that was raging inside of him. And so these, this herd of over 2,000 pigs served as, uh, in a sense, a, a means to see that the, the number, that it's true, that these demons were identifying themselves as a large number, and they, it was true. You saw with your eyes over 2,000 pigs run to their death in the sea. And just to be clear, though, there is still that ethical question, and it's, it's the... The best understanding is that because they were in a Gentile region and uh, because the herd of pigs was that large, that was a little unheard of for just a local farmer to have a herd of 2,000 pigs. This was likely uh, a herd of pigs that was owned by the Roman military and that it was serving to feed the army. And so just a sidebar there, a Jewish reader reading this passage, uh, this account of Mark, would have probably had a little moment of like, 
they were really happy to read this uh, because they thought that there was an implication of Jesus having this military attack because that's what the Jews were hoping for. But then Jesus is showing that it really wasn't that. It was that he wanted people to see the extent of the, the demonic oppression on this man and possession and, it was, and that there was really no unethical uh, action in sending those pigs to their death or allowing those demons to possess those pigs. So they run to the sea to their death and there's this commotion. Everyone comes to see what's going on. And then the focus turns back to the man who had been demon-possessed. And now he's sitting there. He's dressed and in his, he's in his right mind. So let's just pause because now we're seeing an, a, a continued parallel to what had happened in the, the boat when they, were crossing, uh, when they were coming across the sea. After Jesus had finished with the wind and the sea, the, the passage, Mark 4, 39, says the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And now we see the man sitting calmly dressed in his right mind. And so in this moment, we see that the authority Jesus has over the outer and the inner storm, okay? There's power there. He has authority to bring order, Amen? And so there's a glimpse into what his kingdom looks like. It, we see what kingdom Jesus is bringing when he's bringing the kingdom of God on earth. And this, in this kingdom, the impossible is made possible with a simple, silent, be still. And there's the uncontrollable becomes, and the, uncontain, the untamable becomes calm when Jesus says, come out of this man, you unclean spirit. And so in the same power that formed the earth, Jesus is now restoring the earth to order. He's bringing back order to what has been destroyed by sin on earth. And so the people in the region are now filled with fear. Same parallel, when the disciples saw Jesus calm the storm, they were filled with great fear. And they beg Jesus to leave, not the disciples, but the people of this region. They beg Jesus to leave. And so what's important to understand is that Jesus is continually being met with rejection and there's no difference between Jew or Gentile. When you're face to face with Jesus, you have a decision. This passage is showing us that these people in this region had a decision. The reader has a decision. You have a decision that when you see who the Bible presents Jesus to be, there should be a fear welling up in your heart. This should go, the thought should go through your head. This doesn't line up with how I perceive the world. There, there shouldn't be a power to completely stop a storm. There shouldn't be this possession of demons. I, what I understand is that it's, it's just, maybe it's mental disorder. It's not demons. And so that you try to explain it all the way to the point that you don't have to face that inner fear that is, that's welling up in your heart, that great fear like the disciples faced. What if Jesus is who he says he is? Are you going to reject him? Are you gonna ask him, get out of our region, get out of my life, leave me alone, like these people asked Jesus in that region, in that time? Because there's only two possible outcomes. You either acknowledge who Jesus is and you receive him, or you still have to acknowledge who he is, but you're gonna reject him. And there's no in-between. And so those who are present, they have just, they've taken their position, they've taken their stand, they want Jesus gone, they want Jesus out of their region, they know who he is, and they don't want anything to do with him. But this doesn't hinder Jesus. He's accomplished what he came to do. He's freed this man from this storm that has been raging inside of him. And now he's returning to the boat with his disciples. And this man who had been demon-possessed, he, fall, he falls before Jesus, and in his right mind, he asks Jesus, he begs Jesus, can I, can I follow you? Can I, can I become one of your disciples? Can I, can I walk with you? And Jesus said, go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And that's exactly what this man did. In the final words of this, this passage of this account, Jesus reveals who he is in complete clarity. He says, the Lord, tell your people how much the Lord has done for you. Jesus is saying, I am God. This is, this is Matthew's using this account to show the reader. Jesus is saying, I am God. Go and tell the others what I've done for you, which is also something to take note because usually Jesus says to keep it secret. But now he's sending this man out with a mission to tell him to tell others about what Jesus has done. And so he commissions this man to spread the good news of what he's done. And while the people of this region have rejected Jesus, 
This man will be received. This is his home. This is his people. And in turn, he has a key opportunity to call people to the Jesus that has freed him, that has had mercy on him. And so if you're here today and you have found your hope in Jesus, if you have found your freedom in the work of Jesus, this passage is asking you to reflect on what the Lord has done for you. What has the Lord done for you? Where are you now being sent to report on how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you? What groups are you do you have an opportunity to enter into that would reject Jesus? Are there people that you see on a day-to-day basis that are dying to hear about Jesus and they just don't know about it or they don't understand that Jesus is the hope that they're looking for? In the same way that Jesus sends this man back to his people to bring the good news, Jesus is sending you with the hope in the, that he's given you to declare the mercy that he's had on you. So this is, a, this is a powerful call. It's a powerful opportunity to, to, to come face to face with our response to Jesus, whether we will receive him or reject him, and our response to the call that he is giving all of us to bring the good news and hope of Jesus to every area of life. But the passage, it continues. I told you, I'm gonna go through all of Mark 5. And I wanna help you here because this, this two-part like super story of Jesus calming the storm and calming and um, delivering the, the demoniac power and freeing this man. It's revealing that Jesus has the power over the, the physical and the spiritual. And it, it all concludes with him returning from this round trip across the sea. But there is a continued theme here. And this is gonna help us to be able to follow with all of this. Uh, the continued theme in Mark 5 is where can you turn to? When you have no hope and when all other options have been exhausted, where can you go? Where can you find hope? Okay? And so we see Jesus, he's returning across the sea. He's getting back to where, where they all started. And, and he's immediately met with another man falling at his feet. In the same way that Jesus steps out of the boat uh, when, and the demoniac comes to face him, he's stepping out of the boat and there's another person coming to him. And it's a, it's a synagogue leader. You can turn with me to Mark 5, 22, and we'll just read verse 22 and 23. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, my little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so she may get well and live. So a synagogue leader in this town, in this region, uh, would have had a couple of responsibilities, such as uh, building maintenance, security, uh, procuring of scrolls for the scripture reading. He would arrange the Sabbath worship. Uh, he would plan out who would be reading the scriptures. He would plan out the prayers, the liturgy, and the preachers. And in his town, he would have had the expectation to maintain a certain posture and a reputation. Uh, and in the village, this is, they're seeing this synagogue leader, they're seeing Jairus act in a way that is out of the character that they would expect to see him acting in. It's out of the, he's not maintaining that posture. He is now desperate and pleading. His daughter is dying and it's urgent. And just take note, he's not with his daughter at her deathbed. And so he's possibly been waiting at the docks hoping that Jesus would return, believing that if Jesus returns in time and hears his request, and agrees to join him, they might, they might just might make it in time back to his daughter before she dies. And so this man, he's been brought to the realization that if Jesus isn't who he says he is, then there's no other hope. And so I have to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, who, who others are saying he is, because he's my only hope right now. And this completely changes this man's posture, okay? So just take note of that. And then Jesus, uh, Mark 5, 24, it says, so Jesus went with him. Jesus hears his pleas. He has compassion and mercy. And he follows the man through the, uh, and so I'll just continue reading. Uh, Jesus went with him and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. So there isn't a moment to lose. This, this man, he, Jairus, he knows that his daughter is on her deathbed, but then Jesus is interrupted in the crowd. There's someone else in the crowd and they are also changing their posture. They're acknowledging the reality that Jesus is their only hope. 
Now, there's many people in the crowd, but this story is showing us two people that are acknowledging the fact that Jesus is their only hope. So that's something you need to think about because you can hear all of this. You can hear that people find their hope in Jesus, but you can be just part of the crowd that witnesses it, or you can be the one that Jesus faces and it comes in, into an engagement face-to-face and realizes for yourself that Jesus is your only hope. And this, this other person in the crowd, I'll just read this for you, uh, and you can follow. It's Mark 5, 25 through 34. So just read with me. It's a beautiful story. Now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she had become worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. And instantly her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus realized that power had gone out of him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. So this woman understands that Jesus was her only hope, her last hope. She had exhausted all other options. And this passage tells us that she had actually been made worse in the process. And now she's in a a worse situation. She has, maybe if she started with some finances, some resources, she now has none because she spent them all. And whatever the affliction that she's experiencing was, which is probably connected to menstruation, is now worse. And so she has no other option. And Additionally, because of her condition, she would have been announced as unclean because of her bleeding. In the culture, in the Leviticus law, women that were in their their period of menstruation were, were told to be separated from the people for the whole week. And so this woman has been living 12 years of separation and, and isolation because of her affliction for 12 years. So at this point, If she doesn't find her healing in Jesus, there is nothing else for her but continued isolation. And I don't believe she can face that. I don't believe she is willing to continue in isolation like that. And Jesus, he proves to be worthy of her faith. He proves to be a sure place of hope. She was looking for a cure. She found the cure. But Jesus, he turns around looking in the crowd because he's looking for something else. Listen to what Jesus does here. Jesus... He, he calls out to her. He looks for her. He seeks her out. Okay, so Jesus, he doesn't just care about the physical. He cares about the person. And he cares about something beyond that. As we saw when he, he faced the spiritual battle going on in this man, the spiritual torment going on in this, this man in the previous passage, we see him wanting to face what's going on spiritually inside this woman. And he, his first words to her are, daughter, your faith has saved you. Jesus is engaging with her in the sense that her faith in Jesus and who he is and his work has brought her into the family of God. He is inviting her into the family of God. He's inviting her into salvation in him spiritually. He wants her to find hope eternally in him. He's welcoming her out of isolation and into community. He no longer wants her to be isolated. And then, so he says, daughter, your faith has saved you, saved you. Then he says and affirms that her faith has also healed her physically. He says, go in peace and be healed from your affliction. So she, it's so easy to skip over this. Jesus saves her and he heals her. And so Jesus is making all things new. He's bringing restoration and order to the world and he is bringing in the kingdom of God. And so in the future work that he will do at this point on the cross, he is saving this woman. But he is, for us today, he has already accomplished that work. And so when we see Jesus basically swapping this woman's uncleanliness with healing, 
and he, he physically restores her and spiritually saves her, there's a picture that we need to see today for ourselves. And so that when Jesus died on the cross, he took your uncleanness on himself. The Bible describes our uncleanness as sin. Sin separates us from God. So the, the understanding in the culture in these days that uncleanliness uh, would separate you from uh, the temple worship, it would separate you from others. Our uncleanness, our sin separates us from God. It keeps us isolated from God and we are unable to resolve this on our own. And so in the Jewish culture, the understanding was that you could even pass on uncleanness to someone else. And that's why there had to be a separation. And so the widow, when she touched Jesus, would have been understand, understood that she transferred her uncleanness onto Jesus. And that's why she was being subtle. That's why she was staying out of sight. But the opposite occurs. His power of restoration is passed onto her. The flow is reversed because of the power that is in Jesus. And she is restored and made whole. He is not made unclean. She is made whole in the work of Jesus, in the power of Jesus. And this is the same for you and me today, that in Jesus' work on the cross, in his perfect life and obedience, that life, that perfection before God is transferred onto all who believe. And we are made whole and we are restored into relationship with God. And so this whole account of the widow is an invitation to you to humbly come before Jesus and receive restoration, to receive salvation, and that, that Jesus, he purchased himself for you on the cross. So just as Jesus turned in the crowd and wasn't satisfied with only healing physically the woman, but wanting to heal her spiritually and save her, Jesus is looking and he sees you. He desires to call you son or daughter. And Jesus, he, he can heal you and release you from the bondage of sin, the spiritual brokenness and uncleanness that we experience today. But the question is, do you want this? Will you receive this? Because earlier we saw a crowd of people begging Jesus to leave, to get away, to get out of their region, to get out of their minds, out of their hearts. They didn't want to do anything with him. They didn't want anything to do with him. And will you have that response or will you receive what Jesus is offering you? Because we see here the widow is healed spiritually and physically. And then Jesus tells her to go in peace. That's, Jesus, that's the desire of Jesus for you, is that you go in peace finding your hope in him. And so there's no more anxiety in the hope that Jesus gives. There's no more separation. There's no more wondering. This woman in this story, she had no other option and she didn't need any other options. And that we see that all of her needs were met when she met Jesus. And so hear this, hope in Jesus and nothing else gives peace. And therefore, hope in Jesus gives peace like nothing else. Stop looking for peace elsewhere. Stop looking for hope elsewhere because you're told that it's here in Jesus. So you're gonna have to accept that or you're gonna reject that and keep looking and keep searching. And maybe one day you'll find yourself alone and isolated and, it, and maybe broken to the point that you don't have control over anything anymore. Don't get to that point. Jesus is here today and he's looking for you. He's seeking you out. And so where are you placing your hope today? Is it in Jesus do you desire the peace that he offers you? Now, I just wanna acknowledge, there might be someone here today who is feeling anything but peace, who's been wrestling with, I don't know what you've been wrestling with, with who knows what. Maybe your, your church doesn't know what you're wrestling with, but you know, and it's a storm raging inside of you. And there is someone else who is standing right beside Jesus in this passage, and they are feeling anything but peace. Jairus, the synagogue leader, who's been there the whole time, uh, knowing that they're down to their last minute, uh, last hour, last minutes of his daughter's life, he's experiencing this, this anxiety and turmoil. At the same time that he's hearing Jesus saying, have peace, go in peace, he's feeling the opposite. He's hearing the command and he's feeling a bottomless pit, a bottomless well of anxiety in his own heart. And he's at the precipice. He's about to fall in. There's a life or death situation and he needed Jesus to come immediately. But Jesus, life or death, he's gonna obey the spirit. And he had to seek out that woman in the crowd and give her the peace that is in him. And so now the implausible, the healing of a dying 
child becomes impossible. When a message is brought to Jairus in Mark 5, 35, your daughter is dead, why bother the teacher anymore? Okay? You need to just take note of the word teacher because this is who that messenger was calling Jesus. They were calling Jesus a teacher. Okay, and we're gonna get to that in a bit. But Jairus, what he has perceived as difficult or implausible is now impossible. It's impossible that someone who's dead comes back to life. So this is the tipping point for him. Up until this point, he's been holding on to the hope that he, could, that he had in what he had heard about Jesus. He'd been facing this bottomless well of anxiety, and now this message is what pushes him over the edge into complete hopelessness. And like Jesus saw the widow and sought her out, Jesus saw the man with the demonic oppression and, and, and had mercy on him. Jesus sees what's going on in Jairus. He sees it. He, Jairus doesn't need to say anything. Jesus snaps Jairus out of his despair, speaking softly. Don't be afraid. Only believe. So this word afraid could be also understood as anxiety, trouble. Take note of it because things are going to be turned on their head here. Trouble, anxiety, fear is battling to win over Jairus. And Jesus is saying that fear itself, trouble and anxiety itself, should be afraid of what Jesus is about to do. And that Jairus should not be afraid. It's death that should be afraid. And so Jairus, he can't possibly understand or comprehend this in those words, but he does have a choice in this moment. Up until this point, his faith, his hope in Jesus was what he had heard about Jesus or, and what others had said about Jesus. But now Jesus is telling him, don't be afraid, only believe. Could he hope in the word of Jesus? Not what he'd been told about Jesus, not what he had, others had said Jesus could do. Jesus himself is saying that he can hope. Can he hope in the word of Jesus? So now walking to, to his home with Jesus, it wouldn't have been long before they heard mourning uh, and crying and weeping. And in their culture, it was actually professional mourners that would be brought in right away so that the, they, these people were paid to cry out and weep loudly so that the family, the direct family, they could process their own emotions without, uh, without being in the spotlight, that they themselves could cry out and weep loudly and, and, and that processing emotions in the culture was a very important thing. And Jesus gets to these professional mourners and he says to them, why are you making such a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. And now, people have taken this and, and said that Jesus didn't raise Jairus' daughter from de the dead because she was only sleeping. Jesus himself said that she was only sleeping. But this word from Jesus actually elicits laughter from those professional mourners because, like I said, they're professional they wouldn't make it their practice to show up and cause a huge scene to get down and cover themselves with dirt, ashes, cry and, and, in such a way if they weren't sure that someone was dead. That's their only job. Their only job is to make sure the person's not sleeping and not comatose uh, before they start their work. So their response to Jesus is the only proof I need that this girl was actually dead. And they're actually defending, in a sense, their reputation. Of course this girl is dead. Why would we be doing this? Like how outrageous is it that you would say that she's only sleeping? And then from that point, Jesus, Jairus, and only a few others continue in to where this, this girl is laying. And all others are sent outside. And now for the first time, Jairus sees his daughter dead. Now this is the, the true battle where he has to believe and continue believing in the words that Jesus has given him. Can he replace his anxiety and fear, this, this well of depression, with the hope that Jesus called him to when Jesus said, only believe? Jesus lovingly took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the little girl got up and began to walk. The Bible says that those who are present, which would have been Jairus, his wife, Peter, James, and John were utterly astounded. Our God, the God that the Bible presents, the, the Jesus that Mark is presenting, 
walks into hopelessness and death and brings life. So this is shocking. You shouldn't sit here today and say this is normal. Maybe you've grown up listening to these Bible stories and you've become accustomed to it, but it's not normal. If you go into your, the places that you live your life where people haven't heard this, it is not normal to say that there's a power that can go against the, the, the physics of our world. This is shocking. These people who saw this were shocked. Jesus, the same Jesus that calms the physical and spiritual storm with all authority and ease has authority over life and death. So this is the Jesus that Mark is presenting to the reader. And this is the Jesus that you're presented with today. This is the Jesus that you have to respond to. Like I said earlier, that messenger said, stop bothering the teacher. Jesus was not just a teacher. Others say that he was a good prophet. But Jesus, that's, the Jesus that's being presented here is Lord. And he's not just Lord over a few things. He's Lord over all. And so you might be listening and you might be wrestling with that because if Jesus is really Lord over all, that means that he should be Lord over me. Maybe you are not ready for, or willing for that to happen. Maybe it's your desire that Jesus just gets out. Let's get over with this sermon. Let me forget about that. Leave me alone. But this is what you have to wrestle with. Are you willing to let Jesus be Lord over you, Lord over your life? Because in these three stories, they have a common theme, like I said earlier. All the people involved experienced life without Jesus and there was no hope. And it was only Jesus that could help them when nothing else was left. The demoniac, he was left for dead in a place of death. And Jesus came and gave him life and hope. The widow was alone and hopeless and she was left waiting for death in isolation. And Jesus came and gave her life and hope. And Jairus' daughter died physically, but death itself is subject to Jesus' authority. And Jesus gave this young girl life and her entire family hope. And so listen to this. There is no hopelessness in Jesus. Point. Period. That's the end. So what are you facing today? This is when we have to apply it. And I'm going to allude to a few ways that this could be applying to you, but you know your heart. You know the inner turmoil that's going on, and you know where Jesus can bring hope where nothing else could. But maybe like the demoniac, he lost control to, to the, this power, and he had no hope in being free from it. Is it possible for you over the last 15 months, you were seeking out something that would give you hope during the pandemic, freedom from isolation? Maybe it was an escape in watching too much television, consuming too much media. Maybe it was finding relaxation in a nice drink in the evening. Or maybe you found sexual, satisfa sexual satisfaction through selfish, self-serving ways. And at first, this seemed like the power that was in that was enough to free you from the despair, the isolation, the, the discouragement you were facing, and now you've lost control. You have no control to free yourself from that anymore. Or maybe like the widow, you've been experiencing and living with something that seems like forever, that's just been draining your life. It's draining you from all energy, all joy, all peace, and maybe it's a desire for control itself that's fleeting. We can't control anything. And maybe it's, it's something personal. Maybe it's a, a struggle with uh, your, your own body image. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your desire for your children to follow a path according to your own heart. And you, this, this fear, this, this desire to control, it's just draining you of all your energy. And you don't have any hope in that situation. Or maybe you're actually in a life or death situation today. Maybe you've been tempted with self-harm. Maybe you have had suicidal thoughts over the last year. Maybe you've been diagnosed with a terminal illness, or even just today, you're facing crushing anxiety and despair. Maybe you've actually faced the loss of a loved one over this past year. Let me tell you that the Jesus presented in this passage, the Jesus that calms the physical storm and the spiritual storm with ease, the Jesus that has authority over life and death is waiting to be bothered by you. He's seeking you out. He desires for you to fall at his feet and ask him for the help that he offers. 
He desires for the hurting, the desperate, and the hopeless to find their hope in him. So in the same way that Jesus sought out the widow in the crowd, he desires to be face to face with you today, to free you from bondage, to restore you, and to replace your despair with eternal hope. Will you let him? As, as I finish up here, I just wanted to acknowledge that there are brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of Jesus that have found their hope in him. And like I said earlier, I'm just gonna repeat it. <clears throat> this passage is asking you to reflect on what the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you and to go out in peace. So where are you sent to report on how much the Lord Jesus has done for you and had mercy on you? Where has Jesus placed you? To bring hope to those who have lost control, to those who are living in despair, and to those who are in a life or death situation. These are the people that are dying to hear about Jesus and just don't understand that he's the hope that they're looking for. So my question to you is, will you go out and proclaim this good news? Will you usher in the kingdom of God into your home, into your schools, into your offices, into the local businesses of this region, into your places of gathering? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that we only need to know that name to find hope. Jesus, I pray for the battle for, against despair, against anxiety, against the, 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 the power of the enemy on this earth, the desires to, to bring us everything that is the opposite of you, where you bring life, where you bring peace, where you bring hope, where you bring community. The, the, the powers that are at work in this world want to bring death and, and division and separation and isolation. And God, I pray in the power of Jesus' name that that is not what we face walking out of here today, that we know the hope that we have in you, that we know you have sought us out in the crowd and you desire to bring your perfection onto us so that we can have relationship with the Father. We can have access to God. We are no longer separated. We are no longer in bondage, but we are freed through the blood and the death of Jesus on the cross. And so I pray today that whatever we are facing, we'd be willing to receive the hope that's in you and that we wouldn't reject it. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.